You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jack Weissman, immersed as ever in the pages of a book, did not notice the arrival of the bus until alerted by the stir among the other people waiting in the overheated station lounge. The pugnacious chin he aimed at the coach's windows had a bit of Kleenex clinging to it, printed with a comma of blood, and his starched and iron shirt gaped at the collar, revealing pleats in the drapery of his neck and a thick white thatch of fur on his chest. He squinted, caught a glimpse of the glory of his granddaughter's hair, and pulled himself to his feet. He tore a corner from the back page of somebody's discarded Ellsworth American and tucked it between the pages of his old Loeb edition of Herodotus, measuring with a rueful snort the remaining unread inches. He had never been a man to leave a job unfinished, a fact on which he supposed he must have been relying, perhaps unconsciously, in undertaking to reread for what must be the eighth or ninth time this most garrulous of classical historians. Eilat Waldman is the author of Bad Mother, Love and Other Impossible Pursuits, and Red Hook Road. Her new novel is Love and Treasure. Thank you for joining me, Eilat. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. This book has at its heart a really interesting portion of history, which is Europe right after World War II. We always see so much about World War II, but you do a great job of creating Europe after World War II. Talk about the research you had to do to build this world, which is something we're really unfamiliar about. Well, it's so, you know, when I set out to write the book, I had in my mind the idea that maybe I would write a book set during the Holocaust. Um, but I was also really, I had a lot of trepidation about doing that because if you are like me, someone who reads a lot about the Holocaust and a lot of fiction and a lot of memoir, there's, there are many wonderful, wonderful things, Primo Levi, you know, of course, Elie Wiesel and Frank and the list goes on. But there are also a lot of what I like, I, I think we can call Holocaust kitsch. There are those novels that kind of... Um, they're like about the one good German or the, you know, the apple at the fence kind of novels, the novels that are that like are really sentimental and, and, and not very authentic or honest. And I was really afraid about looking at this period of time and, and, and falling into that trap. And then I realized when I found the story of the Hungarian gold train, which is at the heart of this book, I realized that there was a way to write about the themes and issues and concerns, but to set it just in the... It, a little bit after the war, in the, as, as the war ended, a period that I didn't know that much about, that it turned out for me personally kind of uncovered all these things that I wanted to write about and that I had been feeling and that I'd been thinking about and um, that were almost uh, um, like a window into a world that, that was both familiar and unfamiliar and rich and interesting. And also, it was much easier to avoid that kind of kitsch and sentimentality that I so dreaded. 
I thought this book was so rich and filled with life and filled with this huge scope and a really economic space. It's, it's a short novel, but it spans a lot of years. And as you said, at the heart of it is the, the Hungarian gold train. Tell us a little bit about finding out about that and then recreating it. In well, I found out about it in the most ridiculous way in the world. It's, it's almost embarrassing to tell the story. I, I, I knew I wanted, like I said, I wanted to write about the Holocaust. And I always like to write about something new in my novels. You know, there's that old adage, which some people say Mark Twain said it. Some people say Faulkner said it. Write what you know. It's terrific advice for a writer. Except if, you're, if you've been writing for a while, you tend to have a really your life gets more and more boring the longer you write, unless you're Ernest Hemingway and you just keep setting fire to your life over and over and over again in order to give yourself something to write about. But I have like four children and I live in Berkeley, which is really nice, and I can't afford to set fire to my life because I mean, I'm happily married. What am I going to write about if all I write about is what I know about? So um, I sort of go, I invented my own adage, which is write what you want to learn about. Write what you can imagine. And I know nothing or I knew nothing about visual art when I started this book. And I, I felt I was embarrassed by that lack of knowledge. So I decided that I was going to write about art. So here are these two things, Holocaust and art. Great topic, right? We all know there's all this stuff going on with lost paintings and, you know, the, um, the monuments men, blah, blah, blah. And then a friend of mine moved to Hungary. She was named ambassador to Hungary. And I really wanted to visit her. And I really wanted to deduct the visit from my taxes as a research expense. So I Googled Holocaust, art, and Hungary. And I immediately discovered the story of the Hungarian gold train, this, this true events. I thought I knew everything about the Holocaust that there was to know. I mean, I grew up in a house where like, 98% of my parents' bookshelves was, you know, when six million died and its descendants. Um, but this chapter of history, I had known nothing about. Um, do you want me to sort of tell yeah, a little bit about it? Yeah, yeah. So very briefly, what happened was in Hungary in nine, during the war, Hungary was an ally of Germany. And that, ironically, kept the Jews of Hungary safe by and large. They weren't ghettoized. They weren't sent to concentration camps in Poland. I mean, there was lots of discrimination and they lost their jobs and 42,000 of them died in these um, forced labor brigades. But when you compare that to the Jews of Poland, it was a totally different story. But at the very, very end of the war, as Russia is invading from the east, the Germans decided that their allies, the Hungarians, were not doing a sufficiently vigorous job of being their allies. They feared that they were going to surrender, and they invaded. And along with that invasion came, came Adolf Eichmann, who said, look, We've lost the war. I know we've lost the war, but there's one war I can still win, and that's the war against the Jews. And he set out to, and basically they, they took a half a million Jews in the Hungarian countryside outside of Budapest and exterminated them in less than two months at Auschwitz. But the first thing they did is they made them turn over all their property. I mean, everything, every day there was a new announcement. Today, all the Jews must turn in their bicycles. And then the Jews would have to go down to the post office and the bank, and they'd have to stand in line and turn in their bicycles. And they would get these very elaborate receipts, you know, one bicycle, men's bicycle. The next day was telephones or gold or dishes. And day after day after day until eventually the, um, there was a bureaucratic office called the, the Jewish Property Office that had a castle full of the accumulated wealth of the Jews of Hungary. As estimates go to that it was as high as $4 billion in today's currency worth of stuff, Jewish Hungarian stuff. And that 
And when the when the Russians were invading, this bureaucratic office wanted to protect its assets, this all this stuff. So they packed it all on a train and they left Hungary with their eye on getting to Berlin, where they imagined that there was going to be this last marvelous Nazi holdout and that they were the war was going to turn in their favor. And then of course the war ends and the Nazis do not win. And these Hungarian bureaucrats are on a train, 34 cars long or some some number of cars long with the accumulated wealth of a murdered people. And what are they going to do? So they realize very quickly that they don't want to be found holding it. And they basically turn to the American military and they say, you know what? Here, hot potato. This is yours now. And they melt away into the DP camps where nobody knows where, you know, the DP camps at that point were swollen with millions of people from all over Europe who had been, who were refugees. It was the most remarkable time. I mean, there were millions and millions and millions of people, not just concentration camp survivors, but labor um, camp survivors and and Volksdeutschen, German-speaking people who had lived in Poland, who had lived in other parts of Europe who were now running from, you know, they had welcomed the Nazis with open arms and now maybe it wasn't such a good idea for being in Poland. They're running, everyone is running around, millions of people in the streets, on the roads, in the camps, and these Hungarians just sort of melted away into that crowd, and then the Americans are sitting there with billions of dollars worth of stuff, and they have to figure out what to do with it. And that's really sort of the story at the heart of the novel. I love the characters that you've created here, and it's a really interesting cast. And what's most fun about this book is putting together the disparate pieces in time because you let the readers kind of create the plot uh, across the arc as you go back, hopscotch and forth, back and forth through history. Talk about creating this cross-temporal plot. Well, you know, one of I, I knew that I I had wanted to do that when I set out because there were some novels that had done that that I loved. For example, um, The Hours by Michael Cunningham. I just love that novel. And that's a novel that's set in three different time periods, three different sets of characters. They're sort of interrelated. And then Three Junes by Julia Glass, another novel set in three different time periods. And um, so I knew going in, before I even knew what the book was about, that I was going to try to do something like that. Three different time periods, characters that were interrelated, connected by something I didn't know what. And then it turned out, in this book, it's a, a piece of jewelry from the, from, that was on the gold train, connects the three different sections and the three different sets of characters. Um, it was really exciting for me because this is, the, uh, this is the first time that the majority of my point of view characters were male. The three different sections are told from the point of view of three men, but they're about really three relationships. There's, there's an important woman in each of those sections. And, um, you know, it was, it, it, in a way, it was almost like writing three books worth of characters. And the most fun thing for me is inventing people and imagining people. So it was, that was the most exciting part. You know, I could have an American Jewish military officer in 1945 and 46, and what was it like to be him? And I could have a Holocaust survivor, survivor of Dachau from Hungary. What was it like to be her? And then I could have a character that I based on an old boyfriend of mine, an Israeli military officer. What was it like to be him and his whole Syrian Jewish family? And... Um, and then a character who's a, a little bit of a stand-in for me in a way, and then a, and then a suffragette or suffragist, I think is the better way to say it, from from hung from Budapest in 1913, and a Budapest psychoanalyst, um, a middle-aged man, and and a um, a young woman who's a, who is a feminist in Budapest in 1913, who also happens to be a dwarf. I mean, it was just. 
it was like I was a kid in a candy store coming up with these characters. And some of them like come, some of them landed in my head, fully formed in the shower. It was, you know, when you're, there's this thing, you know, they call it flow when, when you have that kind of creative flow. It happens so rarely. But it, I always feel like writers, we're all just really a bunch of heroin addicts because we're all after that that high, that flow, that everyone's like, everyone's in a thousand times that you sit down to your desk, it just kind of grabs you. And there were, there were enough moments of flow in this novel that I was like, you know, I was getting my, I was getting my fix pretty regularly. Well, those opiates are going to do us a whole heck of a <laughs> lot of good because this is such an entertaining novel. And one of the things that struck me about this was the way we kind of see things throughout this novel. We're seeing things from the opposite side, mm-hmm. temporarily and sometimes uh, thematically from where we're used to seeing them. We're used to seeing things in the thick of war, not right. the aftermath of right. war. But it strikes me, too, that right now we are living in the aftermath of two wars. Right. So there's a lot of simpatico between the times. It's in, You know, it's so interesting. Um, when I was a little girl, my grandmother used to uh, was in the Holocaust was played a huge role in her life. She and her mother immigrated to the United States in right after World War One, but her whole family that she left behind they were all wiped out. Um, and my grandmother and many Jews of her age used to have this real sense of the possibility of further persecution. You know, like never forget you're just around the corner from an oven. And to a young Jewish girl growing up in suburban New York, that just sounds laughable. But, you know, the more time you spend reading about those periods and then and the more the more sophisticated you get in terms of thinking about your own time period, I started I start to feel like my, my grandmother, you know, never forget you're just around the corner from an oven. But I don't think I think my grandmother was wrong in her assessment of who was at risk. I don't think it's the Jews necessarily, even given what just happened in Kansas City. But we're at a time in history that doesn't look that dissimilar from the period in the wake of World War One, the period before World War One. You know, there's we, we have a kind of balkanization and, and factionalization. I mean, the rhetoric that you hear in America about, say, illegal immigrants, undocumented workers, that rhetoric is really familiar and, and strikes a chord if you look at the way it, before World War I, people talked about Jews. I mean, it, it's the same kind of vilification and xenophobia. And, and, you know, it's trite to call everybody a Nazi, and that's not what I'm doing. But, but the, the idea of finding a group and targeting them and making them your scapegoat is something that you know, we never seem to tire of that as a human race. It's just that our, our scapegoat shifts from time to time, but um, the act of scapegoating, of blaming others for our own sorrows is you know, ubiquitous. Uh, this novel does a fabulous job of playing out the different permutations of prejudice when we see it. We all know, of course, the Holocaust and the Nazis, but what we don't think about is what happened afterwards when there was still a huge lodestone of anti-Semitism active in Europe, and the Nazis were not so quickly dismissed from Germany, no. were they? You know, I mean, th- some of the things I found out that I didn't know about, for example, Patton, huge hero, right? General Patton, one of our greatest heroes, cannot deny what he did in World War II, won the war for us in many ways. Patton was a horrible anti-Semite, and not only was he an anti-Semite, he he admi- there was a, a kind of core admiration that he had for the, for the SS, for the Gestapo. I mean, Patton, he... He placed um, 
rather than sort of embracing the anti-Nazification, the denazification that was the official policy of the United States, he put former SS officers in high-ranking positions because he thought, oh, here, these are the best and the brightest of Germany. Let's bring them in. We'll rebuild. And, and our real enemy, the Russians, they will help us fight them. And that attitude, I mean, when you read some of the stuff he wrote, it's really chilling. And and he was not unique. I mean, there were there, you saw that all over the place. There were... Um, you know, I was reading at the time that American officers who were placed, um, who were who were rebuilding Germany and Austria, you had, as a young American officer, you had this, these wonderful, blonde, handsome, neat, hardworking people. And then you had these starved, broken, miserable DPs in the camps, the 850,000 Jews who had survived the camps. And they were, they were broken people. They had been, you know, tormented and they had PTSD. And like when you're a young American military, you're looking, who do you, who do you want to spend your time with? Who do you admire? So there's, there are incidences over and over again of, of even the American military treating the concentration camp survivors as filth and the and the you know former Nazis embracing them, and what's even more alarming, and that I didn't I did not know about, was that you saw that on the part of Jews too, so that Jews from the from what was then Palestine, um, they called it the Yishuv, the settlement, somewhat ironically, maybe not, um, came to Europe to help the DPs escape. For they were they were smuggling pe people from Austria and Germany from the DP camps over the Alps into Italy, packing them on huge ships and then trying to run the British blockade of Palestine because British um, occupied Palestine at the time and they didn't want any more Jewish refugees. And it's the movie Exodus, if you remember from oh, back when we were kids. Oh, absolutely! I remember reading that book right. when I was a kid. Right, exactly. Yeah. And um, and, but the language that those Israelis use to speak about the Jewish remnant is really chilling. I mean, I have some of that in the book. And all I did was take the letters of David Ben-Gurion, translated, and quote from him. I mean, the things that he said in his... You know, there were... he In some of his letters, he spoke about these survivors as the worst of of Europe. The the good people had all died. The, they, were, he, they were deeply suspicious of those who survived. Um, and worse, they had this attitude like, you know, if if the Nazis had dared come to Palestine, we would have fought them tooth and nail. We would have gone down with our guns blazing. We would have never walked like lambs to the slaughter. So they had this kind of disdain and disgust towards the the surviving remnant and, in a, and were using them to um, you know, they 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 used them. They packed them on on those boats altruistically on the one hand, but also because from the point of view of the Jewish settlement in Palestine, the best thing that could happen is if the British fired on a boatload of children and Holocaust survivors, because that would outrage the general population, particularly in America. And there would be pressure on the British to leave Palestine and turn Palestine over to the Jews, which is exactly what happened. It's so interesting to see, as, as you describe it, because on one hand, we're seeing the tail end of World War II that we're not used to seeing, and we're seeing the beginning of Exodus. Right. Uh, it, it just, and it's just it's, its infancy, and we realize this. And as from our perspective, we know 
what happened. Right. But as readers, to see these little these little uh, intimations of what's happening is really an, it's an exciting reading experience. From my, I always like the sort of the seams in history. I like the moments before and the moments after. Those are the moments that I think are most interesting. Like. I mean, you know, in film, say for example, I I I'm I love to watch the storming of the beaches on D-Day, but from a literary perspective, I'm more interested in what like the right before that or the right after it. And so, you know, there's a section in this book that takes place in 1913 in Budapest, right before World War One. I. I mean, for some reason, as a writer, what really intrigues me is like is that moment, the moment before everything we know about happens or the moment after it's happened and, and, and that, those kind of un, unknown eras and days and weeks of history. Well, one of the things I think that makes this book so wonderful is though you're alluding to and bringing forth and evoking the horrors of the Holocaust and what happened after World War II, the story that we have in 1945 and 46 in Salzburg is is kind of charming and and sweet and yeah, yeah I mean there in were many yeah. ways and I th- I think that you do a great job of balancing those two different kind of things to make this an engaging piece of fiction to read about a really interesting time that's just filled with all sorts of stuff we did know um, like how much the generals love to loot these right. <laughs> The, the cutlery. Right. The looting, yes. The d- desperate desire for China. And, but like, but even so, you know, one of the things that the, when the train is sitting, the contents of the train are now in a warehouse in Salzburg. They're in, they're owned by the American government, or they're kept by the American government. And, you know, I'm, I, for me, nobody's ever black and white. So even a general, what happened was the generals who were there to govern American-occupied Austria they were billeted in these houses that had belonged to Austrian nobility or wealthy Austrians. And the Austrians stripped the houses bare. So the Ameri- an American general would go in to live in this house that had been assigned to him, but it didn't have any furniture in it, it didn't have any sheets, it didn't have any linen, anything that was like portable was gone, right? So, and there was nothing to be had because at this point during Reconstruction, there was all this, the war had torn apart the country and there was famine and all this stuff. And he needs dishes, and there's like a warehouse full of dishes down the block. So maybe he, he thinks but just, it's like shopping. You got to get the dishes. You wear requisition. And the problem was that maybe they didn't return the dishes when it was time for them to go home to America. They didn't say, oh, this service for 34 that we requisitioned from the Hungarian gold train, we should now return it that we're going back to Minnesota. And eh, not so much. They took it back with them. You know, I, I love the, the characters you've created here. And the kind of uh, the way you deal with the kind of the romantic aspects of this Mm. is really interesting and and I'm wondering how much of this you knew in advance going in and how much of it just kind of played itself out as you wrote the this portion of the book because this is just one of three portions it's like three novels for the price of one well I can't remember which writer it is who said it but there's some writer who said that writing a novel is like driving through horrible fog (laughs) so you can see only ahead like about you know a few feet ahead of you you know you're on the road if you go off the road you'll know you're off the road but you have no idea really what's ahead of you in the road or how you're going to get there and maybe you have an idea at the end point like you know that at the end you're going to get home but you're just driving on that road with just the very barest hint ahead of you and that's kind of what I felt like so I didn't know any of that going in I knew who was in the car with me and I knew where we set out from and I could see 
like five feet ahead on the street. But other than that, I was blind. And that's kind of what's exciting about writing. I mean, I, I often feel like if I outlined too closely, I would, you know, I would satisfy my desire. I mean, I'm writing to find out the story too. And if I find out the story, then maybe I'm done and I don't need to write it. Well, this book is certainly exciting to read. Now, you from Salzburg in 1945 and 46, you take us to Budapest and then Israel in yes, the current day. in the current time, yeah. A- and we we have a kind of a, a some cross-time characters. Right. So talk about this part set in the current day, which is set in intimately connected to the events that you've described before, right. but also 60 years, 70 years on. Right. So um, the American Army officer, Lieutenant, then a captain, Jack Weissman, who's the um, the main character in the first section, the, the one of the two main characters in the second section is his granddaughter, Natalie, and, and a, a, an Israeli man who lives in New York City who is I thought I invented this profession. I created sort of the most callous kind of art dealer. What, what, Amitai, Amitai, what Amitai does for a living, <laughs> and let me be very clear, what he does is he repatriates lost art, sort of. Now, lest you think he's a hero, what he does is he finds art that was stolen during the Holocaust. He makes sure that there's an heir on whose behalf he can, so he, that he can represent to whatever heir it is. And then he, he threatens a lawsuit to whoever's in possession of the lost art and gets them to give it to him and he auctions it and divides the proceeds taking a very large commission. So for Amitai, if there's no heir, if everyone's dead, he doesn't care about that piece of art because he, there's nobody on nobody whose behalf he can, he, he can't get his percentage. And if, um, if the piece isn't valuable enough, he also doesn't care. Now, he loves working in Hungary because though 90% of the Jews in the Hungarian countryside were murdered, only half the Jews in Budapest were murdered. And it was a very wealthy community. So he has a lot of people he can sue. They're like their descendants around that he can find. Um, I thought there couldn't possibly exist in the world someone that scuzzy. He's a repo man. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and in fact, this is a profession, and there are people who do this. It's just so amazing to me that no matter how horrible your imagination is, it is never as bad as real life. So that's what he does. And, and, and you know, it was funny because I couldn't get the – I found this whole firm that does this, and they wouldn't speak to me, obviously, you know. <laughs> But uh, so so he and Natalie meet because they they have a, they're both searching for he's searching for a painting and she's searching for the owner of this locket that she has and the locket is in his painting so they have a mutual um, they have a mutual goal and in that middle section I I wanted it to feel like a caper you know it's like a little bit of a caper novel you know it is and you. It, this revolves too around a, uh, the surrealist uh, painter Max Ernst, right? And how many of these painters? How much of this did you make up? And how you know this is one of those novels where it could take you about four times as long <laughs> to read if you're if you're sitting there with your iPad and you like Google right. every single darn thing. In the I novel. really my goal was that you would Google my my artist, uh-huh. but I wanted you to think, well, is he really? I made up the artist. Okay, good. But all of the people who influenced him, the school, mm-hmm. all that stuff is real. So just the very the the painter of this lost painting is is someone I invented. And the painting itself is someone I invented. But I had to really, I had to do a tremendous amount of research about surrealism and Max Ernst and also Klimt and that school because he sort of comes out of that tradition. Um, so it was it was fun. And, and the, the hardest part to me was learning how to write about a painting as someone with no experience with art. Um, 
my first attempts of it were laughable. But luckily, when I was working on the section of the book, I was I was at this writer's colony in New Hampshire called the McDowell Colony, which is basically like heaven for writers and artists. It's just paradise. It's uh, visual artists, composers, and writers. And they give you this glorious little studio in the woods, and they deliver your lunch in a basket without bothering you, leave it on your porch. And then at dinner, you have dinner with all these other artists. And I could bring in that section and be like, how do I talk about a painting? And the visual, the painters there were just like, all right, I yell it. We're going to give you a mini, you know, lesson in what art is and how you talk about art and what it means to sort of what you're seeing when you see art. And it, that section wouldn't have existed without the, the very generous um, remedial education provided me by, by those visual artists. Because really, when I, when I went into this, I knew nothing I was one, like one of those people who would say, that just looks like a bunch of my kid could do that. What's so great about that? Jackson <laughs> Pollock. You know? I, I really love, uh, and this is where we first meet the Lily, Lilliput sisters. Yes. And, and uh, They're real. They're real. Okay. I made up Gisela, uh-huh. my, Lilli, my own, so I created that sister. But, you know, so what was happening was I was halfway through this novel <laughs> And I was missing something. I was missing like a little bit of magic. That's the closest I can get to explaining it. I knew there was like some texture, something I needed. And my husband came home one day and he said, oh my God, do I have a story for you. And he had heard about this. It was, um, it was the this, opera house incident? No, no. I oh. made that up. Oh. It was this family of dwarves, seven siblings, seven, um, it's insane. They were vaudeville performers with amazing voices, and they were also astonishingly beautiful, beautiful, beautiful faces. And they were deported from Transylvania to Auschwitz, and Mengele became both their protector and their torturer. He, he, he grabbed them and anybody they said they were related to, and they very quickly like picked a whole bunch of people, normal, you know, regular types of people to say they were their cousins and relatives so they could save as many people as possible. And he began experimenting on them. But because he had some weird fascination, I kid you not, with the, the, the fairy tale Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. So he, he didn't kill them, but he, ex- he did lots of terrible experiments, but he kept them alive. And they survived the war. And then they moved to Israel and opened a movie theater and became theater performers and as soon as i read that story i thought ah there's that's uh, that's what i've been missing well that's why you're a married. feminist suffragist dwarf <laughs> of course what this book needs what more and i'm you very very for? short um which is not to say that i have any deep understanding but like i've always been interested in like what it means to be small in this world so it was like a great opportunity to to write about that and to really kind of delve into that and these and they were like they, it was just the, the photographs of these people and they were so beautiful and they're like playing tiny little instruments and and in Auschwitz he he let them keep their clothes which was very unusual so they were always dressed in these beautiful it was just such a strange part of, I mean that that element of history and then I found a couple of books that had been written about them and well, I think one of the things that uh, that does is it makes these sections. This is book is for a book about the Holocaust and about essentially the worst that humanity has to offer and the worst things it's done unto itself in the entire history of the entire world. 
this book is charming and engaging and fun and also brings out some of the best things that humanity has to offer. And I think that's really important in terms of making this uh, engaging reading experience and a reading experience where, by virtue of one, you have a better understanding of the other. You know, I, many years ago, I read Primo Levi's memoir of of his experience. He was an Italian um, scientist and writer, and he was deported to Auschwitz. And when I finished that book, I, I was amazed at this devastating, horrific story that had so much joy, that this man had brought so much joy to this to this memoir. Um, you know, I'm... I'm one of the people who does not believe Primo Levi committed suicide. He lived in an apartment building with very he, – and he, he either jumped or fell as an elder man into the stairwell. I think he fell because I've personally been in apartment buildings like that, and I could have fallen too. But I, but I believe that, you know, that he that book is so full of life and joy that when I was going into this, I thought there has to be a way to write about this and write about it honestly and write about the tragedy, but also show that side that Primo Levi showed so beautifully. The, 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 the things are funny and things are joyful and that, you ha- that a real true narrative of any historical period shows both sides of those coins. But the danger of doing that, of course, is sentimentality. I mean, you don't want to write something really oozy and gu- like gushy and sentimental. So that, I was constantly on the alert for sentimentality. So there was, you know, when in an early draft of the novel, I'd actually wrote a couple of scenes in Dachau during Jack is part of the unit that liberates Dachau. And I wrote a couple of scenes of, of the liberation of Dachau. And they're some of my best writing, but I had to cut them out of the novel because that, I couldn't, I couldn't ever write about that, that part of the history um, without breaking that rule that I had made for myself, which is, you know, Nothing that is exploitative, nothing that is sentimental. Well, I think, too, that what's nice is that you keep kind of a rough edge. This is a rough edge novel. I mean, Jack in, in 1945 and six is kind of crude mm-hmm. to our sensibilities. And, right. and as he's undergoing his courtship, he has some kind of embarrassing in his experiences. I think you write about those well. And right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's hard to write well, about. He's an American soldier, you know? Yeah. Like, if you look back on oral histories of the time, I can't say any of the words on the radio that these guys used, like, just peppered their language with, and they were sexist, and they were, you know, the, it, it's it's the greatest generation, and it's, you know, it was also pretty earthy. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say. and, and I, But I have to say, I, I love this Budapest 1913 section. Yeah. That is just, it's, first off, it's hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. And what's really, really interesting and crafty, and, it, and, it, and it's something that you don't notice unless you kind of step back from the book, is the way you've crafted the, the main character, Dr. Zobel. That this is told in the first person. So mm-hmm. talk about that decision. That's an interesting decision. So um, so this is this is... The, the way I see this third, the, the third section is no doubt my favorite. I love that section of the novel. Um, this is the section that tells you what you've lost, right? But it can't just tell you what you lost. It has to make you feel what you've lost. So that's why this this section of the novel has to be so. I wanted to stu- 
the reader to see the incredible richness and vibrancy and interesting and excitement of all these lives that were then snuffed out so thoroughly, this culture that was erased. So I had to show you the culture. And um, I, I knew that I was going to do that, but I didn't know how. And um, it sounds, you know, I remember once a long time ago seeing a writer on Charlie Rose, and she was talking about her process, and she said, I don't write, I channel. And I remember thinking, oh, baloney, you channel, please. And but the, I, I can't explain it any other way. But one morning, as I was about to start writing this third section, I woke up early, early in the morning, which is weirdly fruitful time for me. And I was lying in bed because I hate to get up in the morning. And I fight getting up. So I spent a lot of time sort of lying in bed in the early hours, letting my mind wander. And this character landed in my head, this Hungarian middle-aged Jewish psychoanalyst who is so pompous and so confident of his own intelligence and yet so deeply deluded. By the time I was done with my shower that day, I had everything about him. I had his voice, his history. His, I mean, it just, it just, it was really like someone had cracked open my brain and poured Dr. Zobel into it. And writing that section was the most exciting, fun literary experience of my life. I mean, it's not often that you just write, you giggle while you write. And I would like write his dialogue and I would be laughing out loud because he was so, he, he just was so insane. I mean, he was so crazy. And um, and then I knew what he, I knew what I, he was doing and I knew what I wanted him to do. And, um, but I, I needed the, and I knew sort of that he would have this young woman patient and that he would, you know, be very, very sure that he wasn't experiencing any counter-transference. No, no, not Dr. Zabel. But what was she doing at the time? And then, like a miracle, when I was in Budapest doing research, I found the International Suffrage Conference had happened at the very moment that I was setting my novel. So here's this city, Budapest, a city where young women, young, especially young Jewish women, were not allowed to go out to a cafe unchaperoned. And... There, you know, hundreds of international suffragists land on the city. And not only that, but the city, like, embraces them. And there is a photographic record. There are hundreds of photographs of this conference. You know, they had, like, Boy Scouts. The mayor had deputized the Boy Scouts to lead the feminists around, you know, make sure they got where they were going. But, like, the whole city was devoted to catering to these feminists. And there's all these photographs perfect photographs that were that were kept and restored and like carefully archived where at the new york public library what (laughs) all right so it was just it was like a you know i feel like when you're in that zone where everything is where you love what you're doing and you know you're on the right track whatever the muses whoever they are sometimes they just throw things in your path like here's a reward for sitting on your your butt for so long we're going to give you the international suffrage conference in budapest in 1913 yay well uh, it's so much fun to read uh dr zobel because like you say on one hand he is absolutely confident that he knows everything there is to know. He is a scientist at the cutting edge of scientists, as we all are. He knows everything there is to know about the world, as we all do. And he is so completely out of it. He is so completely wrong. It's just great to read it. This is a kind of dichotomy. Uh, As a writer, uh, 
it, it talk about uh, creating that kind of dichotomy and also contrasting it against uh, his patient who is way way more connected than he is. Right. So you know, one of my favorite books is Lolita. And what I love about Lolita is that unreliable narrator, that deeply deluded cretin at the heart of that novel, who like, hey, you can't trust a word he says. Now, Zobel is not as malign and malevolent as Humbert Humbert, but that, it, there's just such, so much fun to be had with an unreliable narrator. With a, and that's why I knew that right then, I knew I had to put it in the first person because I wanted it to be all his words. And I wanted to give you that sense that you're just like, oh my God, like he says something and your first reaction as a reader is to trust him. And so you do. And then a few pages later, you're thinking, oh my God, you it, no, that's not what it is, you fool. Um, and and the history of psychoanalysis at that period is just so rich. I mean, the things, you know, everything is about masturbation and the Oedipal complex. It's There's so, so much going on that you can write about there. And here's what's so amazing is I made him a disciple of Ferenczi, Sandor Ferenczi, who is this Hungarian psychoanalyst, uh, um, you know, a, a colleague of Freud's. And, and then it, now I find out at, at the pass, Passover Seder last night, I found out from a, a psychoanalyst opposite the table for me that Sandra Frenzy is all of a sudden having this huge resurgence of interest in him. And that explains why I recently got a phone call from a psychoanalytic institute asking me to come speak because suddenly now, I mean, I thought I was talking about someone fairly obscure, but now he's back in the news. Sandra Frenzy is, is, is being re-embraced in the psychoanalytic world. Wow. <laughs> Who would have thought? I mean, I really thought I was writing the most obscure book in the world. And in the course of this writing this book, suddenly, like, Monuments Men is out, and that everybody's interested in Holocaust, lost art and the Holocaust, and, and Sandra Ferenzi is popular, and there's all this stuff going on. It's, um, it's, so, it's so great. You could have published these each as a novella, I think. Right. And it, every one standalone, you just finish reading and you say, wow, that's that's really sweet. I like that. Mm -hmm. So talk about putting them together. When you put them together, did they start to change? When you were writing well, number three, did number one and two change? Or? Yes. I mean, they definitely, I mean, the idea for me is that you could read them alone, but you won't understand them until they're together. Mm -hmm. Like that they are, they're, they're, it is one novel because the sections though they see it's almost like Dr. Zabel himself they seem independent but you don't you don't know the things you think you know in when you read the first section or the second section you realize you're wrong about everything until when you read the third like all these things that you think you know don't aren't really true until you read the next thing so they sort of interlink that way um mostly I had to, I, there were definitely times I had to go back and rebuild mm -hmm. like oh Okay, I have to go back to the beginning and make sure that happened and, and reconstruct things. But a lot of it was sort of fortuitously, I'd get to that section. I write, I, you know, there's some writers who write sort of jumping around in time. I write consecutively. I start with the first page of the novel and I end with the last page. Um, and then I rewrite for years. But, um, but so that while there were times when I had to go back and say, okay, when in this, I have to make sure in this section I don't do that. And in this section I do do this. But um, a lot of it was, you know, I'd get to a section and I would be writing something. And I think, oh, my God, that makes total sense because in the first part I did this. I mean, it, you can get superstitious and you can think, how, how did I know who's giving me? That's where you get people who say, I don't write, I channel. Because, <laughs> you know, if your brain is working well, it sometimes feels like it, it's, it's all there in your subconscious. 
Did you develop like a, a spreadsheet with little, like little oh my push God, pins? So totally. I had this at one point when I was lost. There's always a point towards the middle. I always feel like it's like 60% of the way through a novel. That's when you hate it and you try to give up and you're lost because you've been there forever and you don't really see the end and you're lo- you're it's a it's a it's a dangerous time for a fiction writer. That's when you find us like sitting in cafes with our hands in our hair, nodding our fingers and moaning about how our lives are harder than the lives of coal miners. Or, or yeah. cleaning the inside of the eyes of, exactly. the, of the iron with a yes, Q-tip. very very compulsively cleaning your house, organized, deciding I would rather have my books organized by color than author <laughs> alphabetical, and you reorganize your whole library, thousands of volumes in like blue, orange, but um. At that point, what I usually do is I break out the bulletin board and I do these very intricate charts with colored. Car index cards and and sometimes even like yarn in different colors leading from one. You can do it all on the computer. It's so much easier to do this on the computer, but it's not as satisfying. I have Mm -hmm. to say. So I would prefer. I like to do it on a huge Bolton board with like you know. There's a a website called Remodelista that Mm -hmm. that did a little photo essay about our house and when and and on the section about my novel about about our office, you see on a wall. I've done the same thing. I was actually for a screenplay, but like all these different multicolored nook the cards and they're all connected in different ways and it's you could see that that's that was at a particularly neurotic hopeless moment when i bust out the colored <laughs> index cards and yeah well that's i even flirted with the idea of like matching my push pins to my index cards and that way there could be a moment where like an idea is related but it's not related enough to earn the same index card color but you could do it on a white index card with a red push pin and that would be like it's thematically related but not yeah that's when you know you need to just stop it and just get to work now uh how long did it take you to write this book about three years years? which is a long time for me i've i'm a very fast um worker and i had never spent three years on a novel before but this is i mean to my mind this is by far the best book I have ever written by an order of magnitude. And it took three years because, you know, it took three years because there's a lot of research and a lot of writing and a lot of rewriting because I wanted to make sure that the the sentences were right and the words were right and it sounded right and everything did what it was supposed to. Even now, if I if I could, I'd probably rewrite it again. Well, the prose, I think, is really beautiful. In thank it. you. There's lots of places where you would want to read it aloud or go back and just to hear it well, in your own voice, you. particularly uh, in the third section with the, the doctor. I just could, I could come pontificate just like that doctor, <laughs> just in, in a heartbeat. Um, one of the things that struck me for a, a novel that is just filled chock-a-block with plot, action, intrigue, and characters, it's pretty short. It's a, it's a not not a long novel. Did you have to like cut it down from half it from it, twice its I size? I wrote so much that I threw out. It's what is it about 350? 330 20, pages. 330 pages. Yeah, I mean I you know I feel like you could all it's so much easier to write long. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so much easier to do it in 600 pages, but I there was a lot I cut out and I also parts of you know, I, I, someone emailed me recently who had just read the book and said, you didn't f- tell me what happens to this character. And I actually knew what happened to that character because I wrote what happens to the character. But I decided that it wasn't my, I, like, I, I didn't, I didn't want to tell, the, I wanted to leave that, 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 that 
part of the story unfinished because you know part of what this book is about is the Holocaust and what the Holocaust did was was end everybody's stories before they could be finished and I wanted in a way for some of the characters to have that experience like you're used to say I'll never know this because everybody who was there is gone um so there's a lot that I threw away and a lot of you know going over and 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 making it um you know like prying it but you know everyone I just recently read um a couple of great, great novels that were like 190 pages with lots of white space. So I was even thinking to myself as I was reading those, my next book I could write even shorter, even shorter. I could do like a 200-page novel. I think that's like the key to sitting down too for a writer. If you say to yourself, I am just going to write a really bad novella, I'm going to write like a, a 150 pages of just drivel. Then it's easy to sit down because you can do that. I could do that. All right. I could sit down and type that, 150 pages of drivel. And then you can trick yourself into getting back to work. That's always the thing. You say, I'm just going to do write a, something, uh, a, a quick piece of hack work. I'm going right. to rip off this guy. Yeah. And you just are find, you find yourself, I can't rip off this guy. Right. But I'm going to do this. And right. maybe that turns out better. It's all the games we play. There's um, this great Annie Lamott um, quote that is not suitable for radio, but it's uh, it's uh, uh, I don't know if I, well the word rhymes with uh, midi and it's midi first drafts garbagey first drafts you know and it um, and that I repeat that to myself often when I'm starting it's like look all I have to come up with is a blanky first draft that's all and then then you you when you when you feel like the stakes are low you can work and and then afterwards you're like well. I'm not going to send a MIDI piece of work out there, so I'm going to rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it till it's no longer MIDI. It's awesome. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, uh, you mentioned a screenplay. Did we, are we going to see that movie? I No, you're not. I write teleplays. Oh. I, I have yet to write a screenplay, but I've written TV pilots. Um, I have made a very nice living for the past few years writing unproduced television pilots. I think they're great. I'm really sorry that the network didn't think that they were, you know, that there was room for them. Now, is, does that explain? Uh, let me see. Am I reading this right? The the Mommy Track Mystery Series. I did that for CBS. I wrote a pilot for that. That one we actually shot, um, which was among the most exciting and fun experiences of my life. I love being on a TV set. And when and television, unlike cinema, in the movies, the only person with less power than the writer on a movie set is like no I take it back I was going to say craft services but you know what everybody has to eat and there's no one on the movie set with less power than the writer every it's like the, the most thankless work but in television the writer is queen the writer is she's in charge the writer is the executive producer it's her show so um, my first experience doing a tv show I had an amazing director and there was a showrunner who knew what he was doing, but it was my show. So I was, you know, one of the bosses. It was really exciting. And um, uh, it was so much fun. And, you know, writing is such lonely work, but TV is completely collaborative. There are 100 people, and you're all working on the same thing. And it's like being at summer. It's like camp. It was so much fun. I loved it. Even things that, you know, I was driving people crazy because the first day of casting, I was like, this is exciting and the casting directors I mean you know, we're casting you have to cast an entire screenplay's worth of characters and it, it, a lot of it is not exciting because you have to see 50 people recite the same few lines for a character who's going to be on screen for two minutes and I was just like yay and he was just like ugh another day's work but um 
but it was really, really fun. And then it, I guess that it wasn't good enough for CBS to put on the air, sadly. Oh, my God. Well, I having had some of the things that come out of CBS go into my eye <laughs> sockets, I, I, one wonders. I know. Now, Maybe uh, it just wasn't good enough for – you know, it's so funny because part of the thing you do at the end is you do testing. Mm-hmm. And so I was sitting – and you, what they do is they play your show for a group of unemployed people in <laughs> the valley <laughs> <laughs> divided by gender. And the women loved it and the w- men hated it. And I thought, wow, huh. What about this show do the men hate? And uh, so I think that really was it. They, 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 they figured they wanted to get some male eyes on it, and I wrote a show that most of the women would like. But I've written you know, two pilot seasons since then. I've written a couple of pilots, and neither of those have actually gone. But someday, I, you know, it's, it's quick work because it's, you know, it, it's 60 pages as opposed to 330. Um, you're, you, you just have to write the dialogue. That you don't have to like that. Someone else's job to paint the scenes and um, dress, that put the people in costumes and all that stuff that you have to do when you're a fiction writer. Someone else does. So um, it, it's an it's like it's a really nice break for me. So I'll I'll do it again and maybe someday we'll get something on the air. And the check's clear. And the check's clear, and you don't have to beg people to buy those new those old-fashioned weird things called books which pieces of paper between hard you know cardboard what is that item it's the oldest piece of technology on the planet that has still not been updated in a better form That's it is fabulous. 400 it's years been updated old. in a worse form I'm, not yeah, I would agree. I mean, the th- only thing I like, I read ebooks. I definitely read ebooks. And I'm, you know, you want to buy my book in an ebook, please go forth. I will even sign, I have a thing on my website where you can send me a link and I will, I will, I will personalize your ebook with a signature. It's crazy, some technological thing. I don't really understand it, but I'll do it. Um, but the only thing I like more about ebooks than uh, paper books, everything else I like more about paper books, but I am incredibly lazy and I do most of my reading in bed. And for some reason, I never know where my dictionaries are. And I love being able, if I don't know what a word means, to simply press the word and have the definition pop up on screen. That's kind of fabulous. That's, I love that. That is a plus. Because often I will be lazy and I'll be like, oh, I can figure out what that means. And the only way you can expand your vocabulary is if you actually read the definition. Boy, I remember the summer of underlining books. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like my husband's books are great on ebook for that reason, Michael Shabon, because he makes, he, he uses lots and lots of words and he sometimes makes up words. And I feel like there are legions of ebook readers being like, where is the definition for this word? But no, he made it up. Now, do you have another novel in the hopper? I am just starting something new. I've just begun it. I was so excited about the, uh, I just loved writing historical fiction. So this period, this novel is also going to be set in part in the past. Um, what I always try to do is write the book I want to read, like what I need this to read. This is a book a lot of people are going to oh, want to read, you. I think. I, I dug it. Oh, thank you. So right now, I just, I, I've been loving um uh, books, Alan Hollinghurst's last novel, which of course I can't remember what it was because now that I've um, over uh, that I'm over forty, I don't remember the names of anything anymore. Frequently, you'll say to me, "What are you reading?" I'll say, "Oh, I love this book. I don't remember the name of the author or the name of the book, but it's fabulous." But I can't remember the name of Alan Hollinghurst's last book, but I read it and I just got so excited because it sort of took it was I took a character through time and it was told 
never from that character's point of view, but always from the points of view of the people around him. And that's what I'm doing now. I have a character. You're never going to read his point of view, but you're going to read the points of view of the women in his life. And it's going to travel from the French Riviera in the 1930s through to uh, probably the 80s or 90s in New York City. Depends on how long this guy's going to live. Well, that sounds like a, a lot of fun to me. I've been speaking with Eilet Waldman. Her new book is Love and Treasure. Thank you for joining me, Eilet. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.